Although he has been dead for over 500 years, Leonardo da Vinci is still remembered as the quintessential Renaissance figure, a polymath whose curiosity and creativity ranged widely among the arts and sciences. One of his interests was the study of fossils. In a new paper in the journal Paleos, Andrea Boccon shows that da Vinci was a pioneer in the study of both body fossils, or the remains of once living organisms, and of trace fossils, such as the footprints, burrows, and coprolites organisms left behind. During da Vinci's lifetime, most people saw fossils not as the remains of creatures that had lived long ago, but as the products of forces inside the earth that were trying to reproduce life within rock, constantly generating the stone shells and dark shark teeth found many miles from the nearest ocean. But da Vinci thought differently, as Balcon points out. His private notes in the Codex Lester show da Vinci had figured out that the fossils of the Italian countryside had once been creatures that lived in an ancient sea. His insights into the origin and nature of body fossils anticipated what a Danish naturalist would explain in the mid-17th century. What's more, Balcon provides new evidence that da Vinci also pioneered ichnology, or the study of trace fossils, which historians of science usually see as beginning in the early 19th century. Historians and scientists have recognized da Vinci's unpublished insights for many years, but he was apparently even more astute than previously appreciated. He used what he knew about living organisms to confirm the organic nature of the fossils. So one might wonder how the science of paleontology might have been different had da Vinci published his conclusions. He initially intended to, but like many of his projects, it eventually fell by the wayside. Even so, the notes he left behind show that he was far ahead of his peers. That report from science correspondent Riley Black in an article titled Leonardo da Vinci, Paleontology Pioneer in Smithsonian Magazine, June 2010. Leonardo da Vinci, painter, of course, of the Mona Lisa and paleontology pioneer? Clearly, Leonardo experienced life broadly, imaginatively, approaching the world through many different modes of inquiry and exploration, and his art served him in developing scientific knowledge, and we know how he brought his keen scientific eye to his art. Might we use the word transdisciplinary as we consider the remarkable achievements of Leonardo? that is beyond the disciplines, certainly beyond silos. We are about to meet a paleontologist and an art historian who have been having exciting conversations that transcend their disciplines, and they are inviting us to come to experience what they've been exploring. Art meets science in an exhibition of photographs and artifacts from the field of paleontology, and the show is titled Lost Worlds, and it's at Misericordia University in Dallas, right outside Wilkes-Barre, through July 22nd, co-curated by Mateusz Wojciech, who is Assistant Professor of Biology at Misericordia, and by Lelaine Little, 
director of the Pauli Friedman Gallery there. Dr. Little and Dr. Voschett paid a visit to the WVIA studios to talk with us about Lost Worlds. This is an exhibition that features 10 researchers, active paleontologists from all over the world, and it is microphotography. So what we're looking at is their research blown up. So if you were to ask the question, what does it look like when a scientist is thinking about how dinosaurs chew, how cell structures come into being, these are snippets of that research. And it's all blown up more than life-size in all cases for visitors to see. If you're an art lover, you're going to love the contrast. You're going to love the shapes. You're going to love the different textures that are in this really amazing photography that was produced by Erlen Cedar. So that's very high quality photography. If you're a science lover, you're going to be surprised, I think, at how beautiful science can be, how really aesthetically pleasing it is to see structures in motion and to see how researchers are looking at questions about, do dinosaurs get cancer? Do dinosaurs chew leaves? These kinds of things that are all evident just in the visual image of their research. Did you just meet in the commons one day and say, this is my research? I mean, it's one of those napkin in a restaurant type of situations where we were discussing just ideas over the year in the fall. And it came around that around in January, Lane gave me a call and said, hey, I've got a spot that opened up. Do you think we could make this work for this gallery? And I'm thinking, yes, right away, without realizing what I was committing to and how much extra work it was going to be. Normally, what you would have is that there's the art pieces that would be the most difficult, right? Here, that's actually the easiest thing to acquire because we actually had a lot of these images already imaged. Also, we wanted to incorporate not just published research, but also active research right now. So if you come to see the gallery, it will be the first time you'll be seeing this before it's even out there yet. And then the hard work actually began after that. So we selected the images and then we had to try to find a way to link all the selections so that way we could come up with a cohesive story. So that way there's a diverse amount of taxa, so different types of species, diverse amount of time. So this goes all the way back to about 300 million years to the modern day today, but also to have that artistic perspective behind it as well too, because we were trying to mold and coalesce these two fields of art and natural history. And it's not every image that's going to be compelling to the eye. Exactly. Well, that's the same with art as well, too. Some folks like a lot of organization. Some folks like a, a lot of intense color. If you're a Kandinsky or Chagall fan, for example, you're going to look for those jewel tones or you're going to look for strong geometric shapes and lines. Others that like Mary Cassatt are going to look for softer images and more pastels. And we have all of that, surprisingly, in this selection of 38 images mm -hmm. in the gallery. So it's a small selection, but it's a large range of visual appeal. Now tell us about the science then. You are a paleontologist. Correct. Actively researching. Correct. And you have colleagues who are doing active research as well. So the idea kind of came up. It's, it's something that I'm surprised I haven't done before, right? I think it's mostly because I haven't had the opportunity to do this as well, too. It's kind of been an idea for a while that's mooting around since I did my PhD work up at the University of Toronto. And so what I do as a paleontologist, a paleontologist will study extinct animals. So not just dinosaurs, but other extinct mammals, other types of reptiles, any extinct animal. That's what a paleontologist does. Whereas what I then do is I specialize a little bit in what's called paleohistology. Now, histology is the study of tissues and not those that you would blow your nose with a sinus infection, but the type of level of anatomy. 
So the way that our bodies are built is that we'll start off with atoms and molecules, and those will kind of combine together into cells and different organelles. Then cells will stitch together like a fabric into a tissue. From there, we get organs, an organ system, and then the whole body. So I'm looking at that tissue level. Now, mostly what we have is we have preserved the hard parts because the soft parts disintegrate. And so I only get to look at teeth and bones, really, and extinct animals. I don't get the soft, squishy parts. So as a paleohistologist, I'm looking at that tissue level of bone and teeth. Now, to get to that, we have to actually cut up the specimens. So this is somewhat of a stigma that some individuals do not particularly like because in the nature of it, it may be considered as destructive sampling. Now, I like to call it consumptive analysis. You may wonder why, and that's because, so for instance, let's use an example. Let's say you're making your dinner and you've got your bowling pot of water, you've got your mac and cheese noodles in the pot of water, you get all that done, you put your cheese in there, you mix it all up, and then you put it in your bowl to be able to eat. So then you grab your bowl and on your way over to the couch to be able to eat that, you unceremoniously drop it and throw it all in the garbage. And then you just go and watch TV. I don't think anybody does that. You normally what we do is we'll eat that and we'll recycle that food into energy. So we're reusing that in a different way. So with the field of paleohistology, what we're doing is although we're taking away a little bit of that fossil, we're utilizing and kind of tapping into literally the inside of the bone to identify information that's completely unobtainable from just the superficial outside surface. Let me ask you then, are you able to conduct your research here in Dallas, Pennsylvania, or do you have to travel? How do you do the active research that you're engaged in? I have to actually do both. So one of the aspects is to be able to attain the specimens, so the fossils, um, we usually refer to them as specimens. I Right now, I don't have any on site just at this moment, but starting perhaps mid of next week, I actually will have some coming in and they'll be actually coming in directly for this exhibit. And so part of that is to acquire museum specimens. So I'll visit a certain museum like the American Museum of Natural History, the Royal Ontario Museum, any other museum that has these collections. And I'll work with the curators and collections managers to be able to set up a loan and then we make an agreement on what research I can do on those specimens, whether it's my research of paleohistology. I also dabble in different other fields of research as well, too, within paleontology. And so it's not just always be cutting up the specimen. Now, that's to acquire the specimens. To be able to actually now do the histological work that I do, I can now do it here on site at Misericordia. So over the past year or so, I've obtained various different sources of funding to be able to purchase all of this equipment that we need at this university to make this research work. And what I'm particularly really excited about, not just necessarily to be able to do that research now here on site, is also so that way I can provide that opportunity to our students. So this is an excellent way for, for instance, let's say a medical student to be able to acquire a new procedure or a new tool in their tool bag of how to make histological sections and how to study a various tissue level analysis rather than just the gross anatomy that we typically teach at an AMP level in a course. It's wonderful to have knowledge for the sake of the knowledge and it doesn't have to serve any purpose. In your studying of the tissues of extinct animals, is there fruit for us today? Now, what we do, and some of the research projects that I've done and I'm currently involved in and collaborating in, certain things, for instance, let's say various different diseases or pathologies. So in the exhibit, we actually have two specimens that we show that actually have cancer. One is a bone cancer from a horned dinosaur called a ceratopsian. And so this is the first instance of cancer that occurred 
73 some odd million years ago in a dinosaur. So we know that cancer was occurring likely before that even more so. Now, understanding how cancer, for instance, occurred back then gives us an idea of how it may have progressed and evolved to now. We also have an example of another form of cancer. It's essentially cancer of the teeth, where this one actually goes all the way back to about 270 million years ago. In these kind of mammal forerunner animals that looked like kind of like a saber-toothed cat, but a bit bulkier and not necessarily as evolved as those. But they had these saber teeth. And what is occurring, and you'll see this in the gallery in this image, is a bunch of little tiny teeth starting to try to pry in and take over the spot of the main tooth. Those aren't supposed to be there. And so those are actually cancerous growths. So again, we have these aspects from the past. And we have these various different pathologies and diseases in the modern day today. And so by being able to understand how they occurred before, essentially being able to walk, then you can figure out how to run. And Lane, when you see that image of the teeth and the little ones and you realize that's what it is, what goes on in your aesthetic sensibility? It's, it's really quite incredible because there are certain correlations with what kinds of visual images indicate something that is strong, what kinds of visual images indicate something that is fractured or broken. And they correlate very strongly in terms of what is the texture of the photography look like? Is it something, is it a jagged line? Is it an orderly line? And Matash has been so generous. He will answer any question I throw at him about what does this mean? What is happening in this? And, you know, we're looking at things like which parts of the cell are new? Which parts of the cell are old? And some of those for me as an art historian are counterintuitive as to how age is represented in the visual image. And to see these in cell structures is an extraordinary opportunity. Have your students come in and done sketches or just been engrossed in the images themselves and ask you questions? We had an Ask a Paleo uh, session in my art history class, and what they had to do was look at the visual image and see what information is available and what information they still needed from the researcher. And they post all of those to Mattel, and we'll have those on uh, our YouTube channel at some point. What's exciting about the Badlands for a paleontologist? Think of big bones. Badlands National Park in South Dakota is actually a massive amount of land that actually contains mammalian fossils from the time range of about 30 to 50 million years ago. And one of the great things about it is that it actually preserves this really neat crossover event. So think of it as, for instance, if when we have new car models come out, and all of a sudden, and let's say you pick out your favorite car model, and there was, I'm sure, a certain year where that brand decided to change the body style completely differently to something that you don't recognize anymore. That is what occurred during that time frame in mammalian evolution. So we have kind of these older 1.0 versions of mammals then being replaced by the 2.0, which have now diversified into what we have around today. And so it's a plethora of that within that individual national park or in that area of the United States. Is there work you can do as a paleontologist here in northeastern Pennsylvania out in the field to get specimens? Is there anything that would interest you particularly? Absolutely. Now, most of the work that I do right now is I work on dinosaurs. And so unfortunately, we won't be able to find dinosaurs here because a lot of this material that we have here in the land that we have here was scraped away by the receding of the glaciers. It happened about 10,000 to 20,000 years ago within that time frame. So I'm not going to really be dealing with dinosaurs here, but that doesn't make it any less exciting. What I could look at is perhaps something even, even older. 
than dinosaurs. So I could be looking at prehistoric sharks. I could be looking at some of these mammal forerunners. So different time frames, particularly around the Pennsylvania and Carboniferous, where we'll see a lot of different transitionary species, even perhaps, that were starting to make this leap from the water onto land that was very significant right around that 300 to 350 million year mark. You know, my first museum that I ever worked in was a natural history museum. So this is delighting my little nerd heart. Every day when I came to work, I would pass by a giant dinosaur skeleton. Uh, one of the first exhibits we worked on was the La Brea Tar Pits. So the Harlan sloth skeleton is my favorite extinct species. And I've told him this many times. You could get a Harlan sloth here. This would be my dream. That would be full circle for me. And so I, I, I can't express enough. I, I can't encourage curators enough to go outside their fields and collaborate with scientists and with folks that they're not necessarily familiar with, because this has been such a, a really productive conversation for the galleries to have. It has allowed us to expand our audience and given us a little bit more approachability for those who thought that maybe art was not for them. Since we have an image before us, tell us what this is. So from the natural history perspective, this is a cross-section of a long bone, so of a tibia, so your lower shin bones over your lower legs, of a duck-billed dinosaur. And it's about 73 million years old in terms of this bone itself, give or take a week, of course. And so what we're looking at within this section is the entire cross-section of that bone. So if you were to, for instance, go to the deli and get a couple ham slices for your sandwiches, if you take a slice out of one part of it and then you go a couple inches to the other end, you, those will look similar but a little different, right? So typically when we make these sections, we'll be looking for a specific area, a specific question that we're trying to answer. What I was looking at here was to specifically section at this area of the bone, so about mid-shaft of the bone, kind of in the middle, and to identify things like growth rings. So in similar way that, for instance, trees have these rings that you'll see on a stump after a tree's been cut down, and you'll be able to get a general consensus of how old that tree was by counting the rings. Bones have the same thing. And so that gives me an idea of how old that individual was. And if I then extrapolate that information to more individuals within a single bone bed, then I can start identifying the population demographics of that bone bed perhaps even identify some social behaviors, which is what I try to get. Now, again, a behavior in something that's extinct that you'll never be able to see again. How do you do that? Lots of data from various different avenues of it. So what we're seeing with this image here is we have one particular growth ring kind of towards the very center. And then towards the very outside, the way that the bone is growing is indicating that it was probably approaching that next growth ring. So these would be years, annual cycles. So this individual specimen was probably two, maybe three years old. And now, granted, two, three years old, we're still talking about a several thousand pound individual, about half the size of an African elephant. And the image looks cosmic. It does look cosmic. So what we're looking at for your viewers is a egg shape that's laid on its side. It's a dark brown. It has black rings in the middle as if there are layers to this image. The core of it is black with a little bit of uh, almost watery looking star shapes in the middle. The background is a midnight blue with almost a glow around the egg shape. So it does look cosmic. It looks like there are stars scattered throughout. There's a little bit of a fracturing throughout the egg that shows these almost like lines as if you can picture sort of rivulets of of liquid kind of flowing through here. The colors go from a very dark black to almost a rust color as it as it fades into these different layers. There's probably four or five layers in here. 
So what I'm looking at is it looks like something that might be cosmic. It looks like something that might, if you're an artist, you might think about how these choices are made as far as how to make this edge so fine and defined and, and solid, whereas the works that are, or the little rivulets that are coming through are very bright, bright white against this dark brown background. The colors that Elaine just described and all the detail that was absolutely wonderful. Now, what we're seeing in this bone is just naturally done by what the planet has essentially stained it by. So all the kind of darker regions, particularly towards the center, are infiltrated with just sediment and rock, kind of like on a sandy beach, because all the soft parts, again, have eroded away, right? So all the blood vessels and all the soft tissue, the fat that would normally be in the bone, like in the bone marrow, has all decomposed. And that's all get infilled with rock and sediment. So as with anything else, if you'd go digging in your garden in the mud and with a white t-shirt, you'd stain that shirt and you'd probably never be able to get that stain out again. Now add millions of years worth of time on top of that, that's how we start getting these beautiful images and these beautiful colors. So it's a natural process of millions of years worth of time that's essentially changing the color of what we're seeing now. We were all in the room we call the Sesame Street room getting water, and there's a mural we have with many of our friends, Oscar and Elmo and Big Bird, and I was making some grand statement about the dinosaurs there, and you reminded us that birds are dinosaurs. So birds are not predecessors or ancestors or anything like that or descendants of dinosaurs. They are dinosaurs. They're the only group of dinosaurs that are still alive today, and there's 10,000 plus species out there. So for those of you that are birders, you're actually a dinosaur fan. Now, in terms of how they've evolved is that they are more closely related to something like Tyrannosaurus rex, for instance, than any of the other animals that we have on the planet today. I'm not asking you to be a film critic, but do you look forward to the new releases? Do you have a favorite film that captures the world that you explore? I'm very much looking forward to the releases. Now, we always have to take them with a grain of salt whenever you're an expert in a certain field or a researcher. The Hollywood isn't going to always, no matter how many scientists they might have that are providing you information on the film or the movies, isn't always going to get it perfectly accurate. And that's you. We always have to kind of consider that back in our minds. But I enjoy the Jurassic World and Jurassic Park movies essentially as a movie, right? As entertainment. That's what we have to really see it as. My favorite one is obviously the original one, Jurassic Park 1993 there. So that's kind of where I stemmed from during my childhood. That's what made me really interested with a lot of the paleontology as well, too. But in terms of another great resource nowadays is also Prehistoric Planet, which is something that just recently came out as a documentary series on Apple TV. And it's a five episode series that is getting incredibly great and positive feedback in terms of the scientific accuracy and portraying dinosaur and prehistoric life. So if you want something that's really great, that's really accurate, that's the one really to go to. In the meantime, you're going to be answering our questions in a direct way. So we have two events that are coming up. On June 15th at 5 p.m., we have a family night at Misericordia University. It's going to be in collaboration with Chick-fil-A, and there's going to be a movie screening along with various different activities, again, aimed at that family level. And then on July 20th, we are at R.C. Wilkes-Barre's Movie Theater, where we will actually view the new Jurassic World movie and then have a talk back between myself and Dr. Frank Variel from King's College here, who is also the other paleontologist in our NEPA area. And we will answer all the questions that you have about the movie, about paleontology itself, about the general area, etc. 
Tell us about how you want us to come and how long we have for the overall show. The exhibition is open until July 22. We are open Monday to Saturday from 12 to 4 p.m. Admission is always free. We encourage all audiences of all ages to come in. I do want to say also that this is part of what the gallery was trying to do in the last year with what we call faculty fan art and really reaching out to the community and getting people to understand what our importance is as a university and how we can share and continue to share our research. Even if you're not enrolled in the university, you can still benefit from having a university in your town. So I do encourage anyone who's interested either in dinosaurs or in the art or in the art of dinosaurs to come in and see this exhibit and attend our events. Dr. Lelaine Little, director of the Pauli Friedman Art Gallery at Misericordia University, and Dr. Mateusz Wojcik, who is assistant professor of biology also at Misericordia, speaking about the exhibition Lost Worlds, Microphotography of Extinct Species, now through July 22nd. There are events, as we heard, connected with the exhibition, Wednesday, June 15th at 5. It's a family night at the gallery with a free screening of Jurassic Park from 1993, PG-13. And after the movie, Dr. Voshik will be on hand to fill you in. And supplies are provided for the craft-making, print-making, dino, line-of-cut printing, and that's all free. And it's all part of the overall activities connected with the exhibition Lost Worlds at Misericordia University in Dallas, just outside Wilkes-Barre. Also then in July, on Wednesday, July 20th at four in the afternoon, we know that the new Jurassic World Dominion film was released officially yesterday, and you will be able to join together in a screening at RC Wilkes-Barre Movies 14 with Dr. Ruschik and his colleague from King's and there will be a talkback following the screening of the new film. All that and more Lost Worlds on exhibit at the Pauli Friedman Art Gallery at Misericordia University in Dallas, just outside Wilkes-Barre. For more information on the web, misericordia.edu, misericordia.edu, M-I-S-E-R-I-C-O-R-D-I-A, Lost Worlds, 